0: Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew-roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 14, the end of Judges chapter 8. You know, we've entered a uh, fascinating and most relevant section of Judges that begins with our study of Gideon. And then moves on to the aftermath of his era as a judge when one of his sons assumes a leadership position. And the lessons contained herein prove that while on the one hand we must always understand the meaning of the Bible within the context of its time and culture, on the other hand we must also see that God sets down immutable patterns that make human behavior predictable unchanging human history is invariably cyclical and repetitive like a clock mankind progresses in a very foreseeable way that moves step by step from one stage to the next but you know something these stages have been visited countless times before in exactly the same order and it's going to continue that way until the Lord intervenes in the not distant future, to end the cycle. The time of the judges represents an era of a downward spiral of Israel's faithfulness towards God and of mankind's declining morality. That era would end with the coming of a king sent by God to bring a new order of governance to Israel and to better establish God's kingdom on earth. The era of the judges was 11 o'clock on the timepiece of historical cycles. And we find ourselves today at that same hour, perhaps only a few seconds from midnight. We stand here in 2008 on our planet's crumbling foundation of confusion, fear, greed, selfishness, and immorality at the precipice of immense change that is but one tick of that cosmic clock away. That the world doesn't see this is completely understandable that much of God's church is oblivious to it is inexcusable. Okay. We moved into chapter 8 of Judges last week and we're going to finish it this week and we read of Gideon having completed the first phase of a campaign to rid the land of the Midianite and Amalekite invaders who always come at harvest time to plunder Israel's food supply. Now these nomadic locusts didn't come Because they necessarily hated Israel. They came because they wanted what Israel had. They came because nomads don't know how to produce. They don't know how to produce what they want and what they need. They only know how to pilfer it. Chapter 8 opened with the tribal leaders of Ephraim, the most powerful of all the twelve tribes at this time, coming to Gideon complaining that they weren't given deference in Gideon's plans and actions. They feign ignorance and insult because they weren't included in any of the battle strategy. But in reality, they simply wanted credit. They wanted what they considered to be their right to some of the large amount of the spoils of war that had been collected. Ephraim knew full well what was going on. They just wanted to kind of stand on the sidelines and wait for the dust to settle, so that they could best position themselves for whatever the outcome, according to whomever might be the victor. The warrior leader Gideon found himself forced into being a virtual diplomat in kowtowing to these arrogant Ephraimite leaders in order to avoid the very real danger of an inadvertently of inadvertently igniting tribal intertribal warfare and thus further dividing the Israelites instead of unifying them at least to a uh, some degree. Now, as we're going to continue reading in Judges chapter eight, keep in mind a very important geopolitical dynamic about Israel in the Promised Land at this time. It has already essentially divided itself up into a number of loyalties. Judah formed the basis for a coalition of tribes living in the, uh, whoops, instrument's bad here. Okay, in the southern part of Canaan. And forming, Ephraim formed the basis for a coalition of tribes living in the northern part of Canaan. This is an addition to the obvious split between the tribes occupying the east side of the Jordan and the tribes occupying land on the west bank. And despite this north-south-east-west coalition, each of the twelve tribes first and foremost sought to improve their own position and standing at all times. Let's read a little bit more of Judges chapter 8. Turn to um, page 280 in your complete Jewish Bible, Judges chapter 8. So I'm going to start reading at verse 10, go to the end. Now, Zavah and Salmunah were in Karkor with their army about 15,000 men. All that remained of that entire army from the people of the east, since 120,000 arms-bearing soldiers had fallen. Gideon went up using the route of the nomads east of Novah and uh, Yogbe'ah and struck down the army when they thought they were safe. Zavah and Zalmanu fled, but Gideon pursued them. Thus he captured the two kings of Midian, Zebah and Zalmunah, and routed their whole army in panic. When Gideon, the son of Yoash, returned from the battle by the way of Heres Pass, he captured a young man from Sukkot and asked him about the chiefs and the leaders of Sukkot he wrote down for him the names of 77 of them. Then he came to the people of Sukkot and said, You insulted me when you said, You haven't captured Zeba and, and, and Zalmunu yet, so why should we give you bread for your exhausted men? Well, here are Zalmunah and Zeba. And he took the leaders of the city and desert thorns and thistles, and he used them to teach the people the Sukkot a lesson. He also broke down the tower of Penuel and put the men of that city to death. Then he said to Zeba and Zalmanu Tell me about the men You killed at Tabor And they answered Well, they looked like you Like a king's sons And Gideon replied They were my brothers My mother's sons As surely as Adonai is alive I swear that if you had spared them I wouldn't kill you Then he ordered his oldest son Get up, kill them But the boy didn't draw his sword. Being still a boy, he was afraid. Then Zabah and Zalmonah said, You do it. You kill us. Let a grown man do what takes a grown man's strength. So Gideon got up and killed Zabah and Zalmonah. Then he took the ornamental crescents from around their camels' necks. The men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us. You, your son, your, your grandson. Because you saved us from the power of Midian. And Gideon replied, Neither I nor my son will rule over you. Adonai will rule over you. Then he added, but I have this request to make of you, that each of you would give me the earrings from the booty you have taken. For the enemy soldiers had worn gold earrings like all the other tribes descended from Ishmael. And they replied, we're glad to give them to you. So they spread out a robe and each man threw in the earrings from his booty. The gold earrings he requested weighed more than 42 pounds and this doesn't even include the crescents, pendants, purple cloth worn by the kings of Midian and the chains from around their camels necks. Now out of all these things Gideon made a ritual vest which he located in his city Ophrah. But all Israel turned it into an idol there and it thus became a snare to Gideon and his family. Now this is how Midian was defeated by Israel so that they ceased to be a threat. The land had rest 40 years during the lifetime of Gideon. Jerubal, the son of Joash, returned to his home and stayed there. Gideon became the father of 70 sons because he had many wives. He also had a concubine in Shechem, and she too bore him a son, whom he called Abimlech. Giron, the son of Joash, died at a ripe old age and was buried in the tomb of his father Joash in Ophrah of the Abiasri. But as soon as Gideon was dead the people of Israel again went astray after the Baals and made Baal berit their God. They forgot Adonai their God who had saved them from the power of all their enemies on every side and they showed no kindness towards the family of Erubael, that is Gideon, to repay them for all the good he had done for Israel. Gideon and his 300 men were in hot pursuit. It's the remnant of the Midianite Amalekite band of marauders that when he finally caught up to them at a place called Karkor. Now we need to get our bearings and remember that Gideon was now operating on the east side of the Jordan River. There remained 15,000 enemy soldiers, still a sizable number for a mere 300 Israelite troops to take on. Right. But Gideon and his men were properly confident that with Yehovah on their side, the outcome was already decided. And their route of the 135,000 in the valley of Jezreel made what was about to come seem like certain victory to them. Okay. The nomads were apparently completely unprepared for Gideon's band of brothers to follow them into what must, they must have considered a safe zone. The invaders' army was further reduced, and Zavah and Zalmunah, the two Midianite leaders, were captured. Now, it's interesting to note that up to this point in the Bible, the Midianites were prominently mentioned and painted as a formidable nation. But from here on, there's going to be scant mention of them. It, it, It seems that Gideon's determination to end the Midianite threat once and for all really had its desired effect. Now beginning in verse 13, we find out why Gideon delayed executing Zevah and Zalmunah. He wanted to use them as an object lesson for his eldest son. And he wanted to demonstrate to the people, the villages of Sukkot and Penuel, that they never should have doubted him. So he takes these two Midianite leaders with him on his way back home. He stops at Sukkot to carry out the vengeance that he had promised he would when the townspeople refused to offer the customary and expected hospitality and rest for his 300 men. Now remember, by the way, the residents of Sukkot and Penuel were brother Hebrews. These weren't pagans. So just as he had promised some days earlier, he used thorns and thistles to tear the flesh from their bodies. He then went on to Penwell and knocked down their watchtower. Why such a harsh reaction to all this by Gideon? Well, the decision of the people of Sukkot and Penwell in refusing to aid their fellow Israelites and, and Gideon was a great sin against God. They had refused to help a servant of Yahweh who had been anointed as their shofet to carry out this holy war that the Lord had assigned Gideon to fight. Rather than fulfill both the letter and the spirit of the promise made the Moses nearly two hundred years earlier to always stand with their brethren who took up the challenge of entering the promised land, led by Joshua, these members of the two and a half tribes of the Transjordan decided to look out only for themselves. They ought to have been more than willing to see the great mutual benefit of eradicating or at least diminishing Midian and Amalek. Instead, they were fearful of reprisals by these nomads of Gideon failed. They were simply not willing to believe that the same God who gave Gideon and his 300 men victory over 135,000 enemy would give Gideon victory over the remaining 15,000. Their unbelief caused them great pain, a loss of an important piece of their infrastructure, and for many of them, their mortal lives. Now the people of Sukkot and Penwell had been given a choice by God. Stand with Israel and God, or stand with the enemy. You know, it's an amazing thing that with all the admonitions in the Bible, that to not stand with God and His people is the same as rebelling against Him, that many large Christian denominations, as well as our USA government, have chosen to behave as the citizens of Sukkot. Neutrality is simply not a legitimate option in spiritual matters. Even-handedness is not an option when it comes to dealing with God's people. You, can be, you cannot be an aid both to God's people and to the enemies of God's people. Only politicians... And wrong-minded religious leaders can plead for tolerance of the oppressors of God's chosen as a godly thing to do. Gideon was God's earthly hand of wrath against those who chose to rebel against the Lord's will. Now before we move on to the execution of these two Midianite leaders, I want to pause to speak briefly about a couple of other vital God principles that are at play here. Recall that I've mentioned on numerous occasions that it is the Torah that develops the divine principles by which men are to live and abide if they want to be in harmony with God. What follows the Torah relies on those principles. And thus, we are going to see those principles played out in either a negative or a positive fashion in the remainder of the Bible the punishment of the men of Sukkot and Penwell was one such demonstration of what happens when a violation of Torah principles occurs. Now let's also talk for a moment about the value of persistence. Because it's something that we're all faced with on a nearly daily basis. And believe me, we're about to be faced with it more than ever. Gideon is one of the finest examples in the Tanakh of his persistence, of persistence rather, in in service to the Lord. Gideon had achieved a resounding and major victory over Midian and Amalek in the Valley of Jezreel, and you know what? Most reasonable men would have stopped right there. In fact. Stopping the fighting upon the majority of military objectives being attained was the hallmark of Joshua and all those Israelite leaders who followed him. As great as Joshua was, and as venerated as he remains in the eyes of Holy Scripture and of the Hebrews, Joshua didn't finish the job. His task wasn't only to win the major battles. It was to fully eradicate the evil enemy. The reason that Israel is under the enormous pressure from all sides that it is today is because Joshua and those who followed him lacked persistence. The people who hate Israel and vow to wipe it off the map are the descendants of the very people who who ought not even exist. They are the descendants of the people that God ordered Israel to annihilate. But they didn't. Gideon did what all the earlier, and frankly most of the later, leaders of Israel were supposed to do. Not stop until the holy war was complete. Therefore Gideon Followed the mere 8% of the Midianite army that remained for a distance of about 150 miles on foot in order to confront them and wipe them out. The problem of finding food for his men was ever present, and even the two Israelite cities in the Transjordan that could and should have helped him refused. How discouraging that must have been. How discouraging. But Gideon pressed on and he refused to cave in. And thus the Midianites from that time on ceased to be a problem for Israel. What we find, interestingly, is that the biggest source of Gideon's discouragement wasn't the enemy, it was those who ought to have been friends and allies. His own brethren were so interested in maintaining a comfortable lifestyle and not rocking the boat in assuring that they suffered no inconvenience that they preferred coexistence with the enemy rather than a tight bond with their own people and with God. The people of Sukkot and Penuel weren't even asked to go and fight with Gideon only to help provision them and to not stand in the way. First, it was the Ephraimites who approached Gideon immediately after his great battle victory with their complaining and they effectively hindered him from doing his job in order to suffer their self-centered and egotistical demands. Then it was the townspeople of those two Israelite cities in the Transjordan who denied cooperation and support while he was on his way to finish off their common common enemy. What might you or I have done in Gideon's place? Would we have had the sheer guts, an unshakable faith, and iron will to continue to fight the good fight even though the very people we're fighting for keep trying to block our way at every turn? Gideon could easily have seen this opposition from his own people as a sign to turn back and quit. Why should he put himself and his loyal men at such risk for the sake of Of people who wouldn't even give him so much as a loaf of bread. You know, loved ones, this is such a sharp warning for us. It's Israel who stands on the front lines. Six million Jews surrounded by 200 million Arabs who want to take what is rightfully Israel's. A billion Muslims... Stand with their Arab brothers and threaten all who wish to stand with Israel. Give us Israel, they say, and the reason for their jihad will end. Stand with Israel, you might suffer. See, you and I are at such a relatively small risk compared to those brave and dedicated Jews who risk it all. All to live in the holy land that God gave to Jacob's descendants and to defend it. And don't ever forget, to prepare the way for the return of Messiah. We are as the people of Sukkot and Penuel. We are quite literally Israel's brothers who ought to willingly stand with them and help them in every way. But instead, we tend to complain, often refuse to help them beyond a pittance. And then we carefully position ourselves so that no matter what happens to Israel, we're covered. You know, we're not being asked to strap on battle gear, pick up a rifle and go fight for them. We're merely being asked to aid them with our money and support and unconditional love. We're being asked to not give their enemy more armaments, more food, land, and political cover. But for the vast majority of the world and for far too many Christians, and sadly for a huge portion of Jews... Living outside of the Holy Lands, our behavior and response is as that of the leaders and citizens of Sukkot and Penwell. We don't want to be involved. And I can confidently assure you that in time, God's vengeance will manifest on those who behave as the citizens and leaders of Sukkot and Penwell did 3,300 years ago. It will happen. Maybe the current world financial meltdown is but a taste of what those who oppose the Lord and side with his enemies will face as a consequence. May he who has ears to listen hear. In verse 18, Gideon determines it's time to bring. Zeevah and Zalmunah to justice. Gideon prefaces this with an inquiry that basically allows these two leaders to indict themselves. He says to them, "Tell me about the men you killed at Tabor." This is speaking about Mount Tabor. Right? And the people living there had no part in this battle. But this shows that not only did the Midianites plunder Israel, but they had also committed terrible acts. Among the Hebrew population, simply to intimidate and control. Their answer was that these men that they killed at Tabor looked an awful lot like Gideon. And Gideon tells them there's good reason for that. These men were his family, his siblings. They were, as the Bible says, my mother's sons. So they were direct blood, not distant relatives. Therefore, Gideon says, if you'd spared them, I wouldn't kill you. You see, it wasn't usual to kill the captured kings and military leaders. Oh, it happened, for sure. But the general custom was to respect their station and allow them to live, if they would submit. Killing them generally served to dishearten the enemy, but in time it also tended to arouse their anger. But Gideon had a duty. You see, his brothers were killed unjustly. Therefore, Gideon was compelled to be their next of kin avenger. Their blood avenger. He instructed his firstborn son to execute Zebah and Zalmu, but he, he was too intimidated to do it. Yeter was too young. Right? He wasn't at all accustomed to killing men yet. And and certainly not such fierce and hardened men as what stood before him. The two Midianite leaders, seeing that this boy was not yet physically mature and was scared witless, then made a request of Gideon, you kill us. You kill us. See, these were brave warriors. They didn't fear death. But they wanted their execution to be as swift and as painless as possible. And they knew that Yeter was incapable of doing that. Gideon granted them their their request. Then verse 21 says something that's very easy to just pass by and overlook. It says, then he took the ornamental crescents from around their camels' necks. In other words, Gideon took, as spoils of war, these crescent-shaped pendants that hung around the necks of the camels that Zavah and Salmunah had owned and ridden. The crescent is referring to the crescent moon. Verse 24 says that the reason the enemy had crescents and certain other ornamentations on their camels and on their persons is that they were Ishmaelites, descendants of Ishmael. What prominent group of people who claim an attachment to Ishmael employs the crescent moon as their symbol? Muslims. Islam. Now before you jump to conclusions, though, let me explain. Islam did not exist in Bible times. It didn't even exist in New Testament times. The founder of Islam, Muhammad, was born in the late 6th century. However, Islam is an odd mixture of, of Judeo Christian principles, Arab folklore, and the ancient moon god religion of the Sabaeans. The symbol of the moon god is and has always been the crescent moon. But even the Sabaean religion doesn't go back to the time of the Judges. That said, the worship of the moon god goes back even further than the time of Gideon to a time before Abraham. And it was very prevalent in the city of Ur where Abraham's father Terah made and sold god idols. In fact, during Abraham's day it appears as though Ur was the moon god center of the region. The point is that as early as 1300 BC the time of Gideon The Arabs had already adopted many elements of moon god worship, and here we find it in the Bible, in the story of Gideon. You know, all the symbols that ancient tribes wore were inherently religious in nature. All of them. Moon god worship changed form. Until today, it is realized in the Muslim religion. Even the signaling of the time of Ramadan, the most holy season for Islam, is the appearance of the crescent moon. Now, interestingly, in modern times, Islam has become somewhat embarrassed at all of its moon god heritage. And so has taken to denying it as of late. In fact, a few decades ago, some of the Muslim sects began to remove the chapters in the Koran that actually spoke directly to it. Not all that long ago, a British man wrote a book about this cover-up, and he named it The Satanic Verses. The man's name is Salman Rushdie, and some of the Islamic religious leaders ordered him killed for exposing it. He's been in hiding and seclusion for years. The so-called satanic verses of the Koran are verses that were removed from it to hide the direct moon-god beginnings of Islam as forthrightly stated in their holy book. Of course, all of the Islamic crescent moon-related symbols and rituals the observances all timed on the appearance of the crescent moon, even the name of their god Allah, which comes from the words Al- Al-Ilah, all refers directly to the moon god. So here we have in the book of Judges moon god worshippers, sons of Ishmael, bedeviling Israel over 3,000 years ago. God full well knew that the violent and murderous intent of Muslims to rid the world of all vestiges of God's people would do nothing but increase as a result of Israel's reluctance to deal with moon god worshiping Arabs and Midianites and other Middle Eastern tribes when they first began to occupy Canaan. Do you see what I mean about the cyclical nature? of history the entire world is subject to it the only real question before us is are we in the final cycle or is there another one to come that's important to know if we can know because the final cycle will end with the return of Messiah Messiah Verse 22 reveals something startling, but expected. In fact, I suggested in the introduction to Joshua some weeks ago to watch for it when when it comes. Recall I told you that the purpose for the era of the judges was to convince Israel that they must have a king to rule over them. It was God's intent that Israel has a king, but they didn't want one. You know what? They'd had enough of kings. The king of Egypt was the last king to rule over them. That hadn't worked out so well. Let me be clear. Despite the prevalent and completely misguided teaching from within Christianity that God did not want Israel to have a king, that's just not accurate. It's only that God wanted Israel to have his king who would be a godly king in the mold of a shepherd's servant as opposed to the self-serving, power-seeking, wealth-oriented, charismatic type of king that the world always seeks. The first God-approved and provided king would be David. The next God-approved king will be Yeshua when he returns to set up his kingdom. But after Gideon defeated the Midianites... Some of those 12 tribes that had been so oppressed for so many times, they'd gone through such hardships that they finally were beginning to realize that they just weren't going to make it unless they banded together under one leader. So some of the tribal and the clan leaders went to Gideon, and they offered him the job as King Over them. Indeed, this was a very major turn of events. However, Gideon, even though he was very deeply flawed, knew enough of God to refuse the offer. Gideon was an an anointed shofet, a judge, not a melech, not a king. So he told the people that Jehovah was their king and there wasn't any need for another. Now, a couple things to consider about the evolving society and attitudes of the Israelites. First, is that there was a a growing understanding among them that a more robust and continuing leadership would be of real benefit for the people. And second, coupled with that, is that a judge was only ever raised up after a long period of subjugation. And when the judge delivered the people, that Shofet would only rule until he died, but he'd have no successor. Thus the leadership ended, and the next cycle of oppression would begin, because Israel had no leader. By accepting a government over them, based on a monarchy, there was a natural means of succession. The king's son usually took over, and then his son. Further, by that king actually being the head of a sovereign government, a standing army would be formed. And then the possibility of preventing another foreign subjugation became, a, became very realistic. People of all eras are very practical. And thus there were real and pressing circumstances behind the Israelite tribal and clan leaders' sudden willingness to cede their personal autonomy to a king. Are you able to bring this principle forward today and see where the entire world, including the United States, is headed in that regard? Can you see it? We have watched within the last several days as the United States has all but nationalized our mortgage and lending systems. Britain has overtly now purchased majority shares in the nation's banks, thus making them de facto government-owned. And by the way, the U.S. will probably start that next week. But it happened, it is happening to us, not as a, a coup, but a practical matter. The prospect of a worldwide financial Armageddon is so real and imminent that these steps are being deemed unavoidable by panic-stricken politicians, billionaire business leaders, and even the majority of these nations' citizens. When Barack Obama went to Europe, he was hailed as a world leader, almost as a global messiah of sorts. Even before this financial system mess hit home, folks, the world wants a king. It's our nature. The Lord is driving the world towards a king. If I heard it once, I heard it a hundred times on our financial TV channels over the past several days that there is really little choice but for us to band together and begin now to integrate our money and credit markets into one worldwide system because this pell-mell globalization of the last several decades has so entangled the world's corporations and governments that if we don't integrate them there is simply no way to manage fiscal and monetary policies. On October the 8th, a week ago, less than a week ago, this past week, for the first time in history, the U.S. and several other nations worked in perfect concert with their various national banking systems to lower key interest rates precisely in lockstep so that money would not flow from one nation to another in order to seek better terms. This is at least as big an event and change in direction of the whole world as when some of the leaders of Israel asked Gideon to become their first king. The world wants a king. And soon we're going to anoint one. Christians know him as the Antichrist. God wants us to have a king, but not the one we're going to choose, and the one that's going to betray us. God wants us to have his son as our king, our perfect king. But you know, we simply won't be ready for him, and the world will not accept him until we've experienced the final horror of a worldwide kingdom run by an evil man. Of our own choosing. As much merit as Gideon showed by not accepting the position as king, there is no doubt that the trappings of being a king intrigued and ultimately seduced him. Because in verse 24, he says that while he humbly refuses the offer of kingship, he would appreciate it if they go ahead and offer him tribute. Gideon asked that all who helped to fight and who had received some of the spoils of war from the Midianites would give it to him all the gold earrings they had taken from the defeated enemy. The people complied and it included also some of the crescents and pendants and even some very valuable purple cloth that was worn by kings and royalty. So while Gideon may not have been a king he was going to certainly live like one. But then Gideon took another step that is very troubling. He may have refused to be Israel's official king, but he obviously attempted to create a new alternative to the existing priesthood by making himself equivalent to the high priest. He took much of the roughly 50 pounds of gold and made an ephod, a ritual vest worn by the high priest. He used it in his personal hometown of Ophrah, Now, I mentioned in earlier lessons that one of the reasons that Israel was constantly flirting with idolatry and then going through these cycles of apostasy and then punishment by God and oppression as part of that punishment and then deliverance and then restoration and then a long period of peace is that the priesthood was not functioning properly. It was probably due to a combination of the people paying a little attention to them. The priests really had no actual civil authority over the 12 tribes. The people not giving the priesthood their tithes and offerings so that the priest had little choice but to go to work for a living. And the priesthood, frankly, losing respect over corruption. Okay. The tabernacle at this point was located in Shiloh. Shiloh. So, for Gideon to make for himself a high priest ritual vest and keep it in Ophrah demonstrates just how far from any scriptural teaching Israel was operating at this time. Verse 27 says that the people looked up to that ephod of Gideon as an idol. More accurately, it says they went whoring after it. But the point is that they accepted the ephod and its wearer as the real thing. They're happy to do it. Soon it became not a tool of God, but an object to be worshipped. An idol. God had ordained one high priest only, but now Gideon, who had refused the civil role as a king, turned right around and created the spiritual religious role of high priest for himself. This sort of thing would be copied many years in the future when the Israelites of Samaria broke away from the Jerusalem-based priesthood and created their own separate and independent priesthood, even built their own temple, and all this was even in operation in Jesus' day. Despite all of Gideon's foibles and delusions of grandeur, Midian was defeated, the northern tribes of Israel were delivered, Gideon settled in as the judge over that area of Canaan, And his office would last for about 40 years and there would be peace for that time, at least for the people in the northern part of Canaan. But to demonstrate Gideon's rather inflated view of himself, verse 30 explains that he had 70 sons by as many wives. Hebrew tradition is there was a wife for every son. Having 70 wives, maybe if he even wasn't quite 70, takes a lot of wealth. Man, you agree with me on that? Amen, that's right. Do you remember much earlier Gideon had explained to God that he couldn't possibly be the Savior of Israel because his clan was the poorest tribe in Manasseh? Hmm. Having a lot of wives was also decidedly looked down upon by God and was only deemed acceptable in Hebrew society if royalty produced such a harem. Then in the following verse is the setup for the next chapter, and we're introduced to a fellow named Avimelech. This man was Gideon's son by means of a concubine from the city of Shechem. That does not mean that Avimelech was illegitimate. But it does mean that he automatically carried a lower status than, than his brothers. This chapter ends with Gideon's death. It says he lived to a ripe old age, meaning that he had received God's blessing of a full lifespan. But as soon as he died, Israel immediately started chasing after the Canaanite gods again. They went so far as to actually officially name Baal Berit, Baal of the covenant, as their God. Good leadership is always essential in God's plan. But any human leader, is subject to failures. Gideon was no different. What he couldn't have known, though, is what his example would do to his family after he was gone. Avimelech means the father is king. It's a regal title. Avimelech is a title. It's not a name. In other words, this is not a formal name that this son of a concubine was given shortly after his birth. In fact, we don't really know what his name was. Okay. Rather, it was a title given to him later on in life by Gideon or somebody. Okay. Probably, because, probably when his son was just an adolescent. Thus, we see Gideon's propensity to serve out his time as a judge in a very kingly manner. Now, such a title is given to a son because the father has high aspirations for him. And we're going to see in Judges 9 that Abimelech fully embraced those aspirations. I want to end today with this note. It's absolutely astounding how fast a person, a family, or an entire nation can forget God's blessings that made them who and what they are, and then turn away to idolatry. Israel just couldn't resist the pull towards Baal because the people that lived among Israel were Canaanites who were permitted to continue to worship Baal. This pagan mystery Babylon religion must have been awfully attractive to most Hebrews, Because it seems they just couldn't wait to get back to it the minute a godly leader wasn't there to insist on their allegiance to Jehovah, Yet in all this, one should never overlook the power of Satan to bring delusion. He had deluded the Israelite people in the first place to follow this false way, and now he was able pretty easily to do the same thing all over again despite the awesome and unmistakable lessons God had taught to Israel. One must never underestimate the power of the great and continuing enemy of God and how he will always fight against God's program of redemption. We're going to take up the story of Avimelech next time.